Amen. Heavenly Father, that is who you are. You are the way maker. You're the chain breaker. You are the ultimate healer physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Father, you set the captives free. You wanted, we read in your word over and over and over again ways that you have led your people to freedom from captivity whether it is physical or emotional or spiritual. And you haven't stopped doing that. And you want to do that today in here with us. Father, we just declare your greatness, your goodness, your compassion, your mercy, your power, your wisdom, your providence. Father, because of who you are and what you've done, in Christ. Father, my prayer for every single one of us and us collectively as your people that it is true that with everything we will shout for your praise. With everything we will declare who you are and what you've done. Would our entire lives be marked by worship? by ascribing to you the highest value, you are certainly worth it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let there be a glass table. Thank you, whoever brought this to me, for me. That's better. Good morning, Trinity. How is everybody this morning? Good. No one would say bad. It's a bad question. Amazing. There you go. Even better. Well, for those of you who I haven't had the chance to meet yet, welcome. My name is David. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here. Uh, if you are new, a special welcome to you. We are rounding third base of our sermon series here through the book of Ecclesiastes. And today we're going to find ourselves in chapter 5. Now this book, I'll just speak for my for myself here. This book has been very challenging, not just to preach through, but to study, to hear, to apply. Uh, and it's been challenging because it asks and demands answers to life's biggest questions. So, so far, we've been challenged to really meditate on what in life we are pursuing. What in life are we chasing? Is it money? Is it power? Is it status? Is it fame? Or is it the glory of God? We've been challenged to meditate on what fulfills us and brings us joy. And are we, are we finding our joy in the gifts? Or can we look through them to the giver of those gifts? We've been challenged on our human limitations and what in life we are trying to control and even can control. And last week, Pastor Matt challenged us to consider our role within community. In other words, moving from the me to the we. And this week, we're going to be studying verses 1 through 7 in chapter 5, and God's Word is going to challenge us on something that is core to our being, which is worship. So if you'd grab the Bible on the pew back in front of you, flip to page 541, last few verses, bottom right-hand side of the page, and it's going to continue on to 542. And join me in reading verses 1 through 7. So this is Ecclesiastes 5, 
verses 1 through 7. The preacher writes, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they are doing wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares, and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Heavenly Father, would you teach us what we do not know? Would you show us what we do not see? Would you tell us what we do not hear? Would you make us what we are not? For the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now in a way, (laughs) this sermon could have taken me 20 minutes to write and two minutes to deliver. Watch how you approach God. Knock it off with the lengthy prayers. Keep your promise. Fear God. But if I did that, you'd all get mad at me and want your money back. No, if I did that, I'd be speaking only to what you do but not who you are. I'd be speaking to your behavior, but not your identity. As I studied chapter 5, these verses 1 through 7 this week, I found the passage incredibly easy to understand and incredibly easy to apply, which was my first indication that I had missed something. And that something is the stark difference between our behavior and our identity. And the more that I learn about God's character, the more that I experience God's character, the more that I see him as a gospel-centered, loving father. Now, I myself as a father have not always been a gospel-centered, loving father. But gospel-centered, loving fathers do not settle for behavior modification in their children. They dig deeper investing in the transformation of their children's heart. Believe me, and any parent will know, it is far easier to say, knock it off, cut it out, do this, don't do that. But it is far more impactful to say, hey, that is not who you are. That's not who you've been created to be. You are kind and gentle and beautiful and valuable. Walk in that light. Live that out. That's true of an earthly loving father, and that is infinitely true of our perfect heavenly father. Jesus did not step out of heaven and into space and time to perform surgery on our behavior, but on our hearts. Does God care about our behavior? Yes, of course he does, as any loving father does but he first cares about the affections of our heart. God cares about our worship. So when we read verses in Scripture such as these seven in Ecclesiastes, we should not 
and we cannot settle for behavior modification. Let's take a quick look at how God receives our worship when we just go through religious motions, when we're just trying to behave properly. This is straight out of Isaiah 1. It'll be familiar to many of you. God says this. He says, the multitude of your sacrifices, all of these sacrifices, what are they to me? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Now I know at times we have this picture of, of this bipolar God who is all grumpy in the Old Testament, but somewhere between the last verse in Malachi and the first verse in Matthew, there's this round table discussion in heaven at which is declared that this wrath thing isn't working out so well. Maybe they should try love, and so they send Jesus all meek and mild. But listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I'm not trying to prescribe a reaction here, but these verses stop me dead in my tracks and make me take a real hard look. Now, you're going to hear this a few times this, this sermon, but if I'm honest, and this, this sermon hit me in ways I did not, this, this scripture hit me in ways this week I just was not expecting. But if I'm honest, there are times that I am physically present with my wife, yet emotionally absent. We might be sitting on the couch together, but I'm a million miles away. Lost in the emails I've got to return, the calls I have to make, the conversations I need to have. In those moments, even though she deserves my heart's affection, she can't have it because I've given it to something else. It is entirely possible to be physically present in church or in prayer with God or making promises for God or casting out demons for God or making sacrifices to God and yet be spiritually absent. So with that backdrop, let me give you my gospel-shaped thesis statement on Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, and then we'll unpack it. Here it is. God desires and deserves heart-led worship, not religious-led activity. God desires and deserves heart-led worship, not religion-led activity. 
And to properly unpack this and apply it, I want to do two things. First, we're going to look at these verses in light of the law and the gospel. Now, when I say law and gospel, I do not mean good and bad. I mean we're going to look at what the law of God calls us to do and view that in light of who the gospel of Jesus Christ says that we are. What the law of God calls us to do, who the gospel of Christ says that we are. And we're going to see how these verses in Ecclesiastes all find their ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The second thing that we need to understand in order to apply these verses is the context in which they were written. While we do not know with certainty who wrote Ecclesiastes, we do know that it speaks to the life of an Israelite during what is known as the temple period. Simply put, it was written during or about a time when God's people worshipped in God's temple because that is where God's spirit dwelled. The Hebrew word used in the Old Testament for worship is hishtava, and the word literally translates to bow down. This localized worship to the temple, because that is where God's spirit dwelled, and referred to a literal outward act. So the context of worship within this time period that this was written is localized to the temple and represented by outward acts. Localized and outward. That's the law. But we have to understand this wisdom in light of the gospel. And because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our worship of God is no longer confined within a temple or outward acts. But now it is widespread and first inward. It is no longer confined within a temple or outward acts, but it is widespread and first inward. It is widespread and first inward because the Spirit of God now dwells inside every Christian. We do not go to where God is to do worship. Where we go, God is. And worship flows from who we are, not what we do. So let's dig in. In verse 1, the preacher cautions, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now many of you know this throughout Scripture, walking is a metaphor for living. So be careful how you are living when you approach the presence of God. So question, are you living a godly life? Not godly as you want to define it, godly as God defines it. Are you living a godly life Monday through Saturday before you come in here to worship? And if your answer is no, the religious prescription is to do more good things and do less bad things. Clean up your act so that you could come in here and worship. That's the law. Do better, try harder. But God does not want law-shaped worship. He wants gospel-shaped worship. And so we've got to press deeper past behavior modification to our motivations. 
And so if walking is a metaphor for living, our feet will take us where our heart directs us. If walking is a metaphor for living, our feet will take us where our heart directs us. And just like you would not want to try to hike out of the rainforest with a misaligned compass, we must not carry on with religious activities with misaligned hearts. Now, for the past several years, I've gone through this really long season, these very long seasons, and I I know for a fact I'm not alone in this, where I wake up suddenly at 3 a.m. in the morning, my heart pounding, some pressure points, some stress racing through my mind, financial, relational, some decision that I need to make, some kind of work that needs to get done. But I want to share something with you. At this point, I bet I've woken up like that hundreds of times. Never once did I wake up in a panic because I forgot to get into God's Word that day, and it's not because I read God's Word every day, although I should. Never once have I woken up in a panic because I forgot to pray that day, and it's not because I pray every day, although I should. But how pleased do you think God would be if after waking up at 3 a.m., that next day, I read his word and prayed so that I could sleep at night? Not to hear his voice through his word or commune with my heavenly father, but so that I could sleep. Oh, but God, I did the religious thing, you see. I read your scripture. I prayed some prayers. Well, that might be the religious thing, but it's not the gospel thing because my heart would still not be aligned with my heavenly Father. God has no use for any of my religion-led activity. He wants my heart-led worship because he knows that when my heart rests in him spiritually, I will rest physically. Now, of course, we should always approach God with absolute reverence and awe. His very nature demands it. He is in heaven and we are on earth. Period, new paragraph. His very nature demands our worship. And he's also our loving father. And this side of the cross... We don't guard our steps and clean up our act so that we can come to the house of God to worship. We are the temple of the living God. And so we live a life that reflects that light. Amen? All right, at the end of verse 1 and into verse 2, the preacher advises us, draw near to listen to God, not to be hurried or hasty in speech or thought before the Lord. Now, I need to make two quick points here. Number one, this is how I know God has a sense of humor. Because my biggest pet peeve is being interrupted when I am speaking to somebody, which I know now lends itself to you interrupting me, I get it. But don't you know that what I have to say is so earth-shatteringly important that you must be on the edge of your seat just waiting to receive my wise counsel? Oh, really? 
I can hear God saying. There is a major difference between talking to God and talking at God. And point number two, and this went off like a spiritual grenade for me this week. There is a chasm between listening and just waiting to speak. Now, if you just nudged your significant other, I'd like to give you a moment to repent. (laughs) But there is a chasm between listening and simply just waiting to speak. But can I admit again that one of the most dangerous yet recurring situations I find myself in as a preacher and a teacher of God's word is that I always read it for someone else. It's always for someone else. I'm reading God's word and I'm thinking, oh, so-and-so's got to hear this. God's speaking to me, but I just can't wait to talk. I'm not listening to him for me. I'm listening to him for you. And think of the culture this reinforces here. To hear the word of God, to hear the voice of God, you need to come in here and sit and listen to us professional Christians (laughs) sermonize once a week. That's the law. Can you not see it? That's the law. Localized. Where? Here. Outward. My talking, you're listening. But let me tell you the worst kept secret in the New Testament. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you do not need me or Pastor Kirk or Pastor Matt or any priest, or any preacher, or any teacher for that matter, to hear from your heavenly Father. Jesus Christ is the ultimate high priest who was the sacrifice once and for all. And when he willingly gave up his spirit on the cross, that veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. No more separation between man and God. And when you put your faith in him, he puts his spirit in you. Because of Jesus' sacrifice for you and God's Spirit in you, the question is no longer, can we hear God's voice for ourselves? The question is, are you listening? Within our prayer life, does He want us to bring to Him our cares, our frustrations, our anxieties, our fears? Does He want us to praise His holy name? Of course He does. He wants to meet us in every single one of those areas and bring healing and redemption and restoration. He wants to guide His children, give us His wisdom. He wants to reaffirm to you over and over again of His love for you, but He's not going to talk over you. Now, if you're new to Trinity, spoil alert, God does not live here, but because we are here, he is here. Where we go, he goes, because his spirit dwells within us. And does not the very fact that God's word says to draw near to listen directly imply that God wants to speak? 
I'll never forget learning about something called sympathetic resonance. Everybody here knows what a tuning fork is, right? You go to the doctor, he hits the thing, he holds it up next to your ear, he pulls it around the other side, and that's the noise it makes. If you haven't heard that, you don't know what I'm talking about, but it won't matter because you can't hear me. I don't know. <laughs> tuning fork, that's a tuning fork. If I take two tuning forks that are tuned to the same key and I hit one of them and I hold another one next to it, even though I haven't hit the other one, it will start to make the same noise because it is resonating with the frequency and the sound waves of the one that I hit. When we draw near to God to hear his voice, his spirit within us will resonate his voice throughout us. And guess what happens when you add a third tuning fork? It resonates too. Our brothers and sisters in Christ have the same spirit within them. I can think of so many times when I've been in conversation with Dan Donahue or Greg Reiners or Jack Penny or Pastor Kirk or my wife Ashley about things that I think God is telling me. And they've been able to discern with me and help me not just hear, but to listen and to respond because that same spirit is within them. And these relationships are key. They're not nice to have. They are key to my spiritual growth. Seek them out. If you need help finding them, reach out. This is the kind of hearing and listening and responding that we were made for. Dwelling inside you is the most wise counselor, the best friend, the loving father, the compassionate companion, the gentle convictor, the bold encourager, the peaceful advocate, and the most experienced guide. The gospel reminds us that because of God in Christ, because in Christ he drew near to us, that we don't need to go anywhere and we don't need anyone else to hear his voice and draw near to him. All right, let's finish up with something that everybody does but no one admits. Negotiate with God. Verses 4, 5, and 6. I'm going to read from the ESV. I just like the way it parses the translation a little bit better. It should be able to be up on the screen. It says, verse 4, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Now, this wisdom comes straight from the law. I mean, like literally straight from the law that God gave to Moses. Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you must not delay in fulfilling it. For otherwise, he will surely hold you accountable as a sinner. If you refrain from making a vow, it will not be sinful. Whatever you vow, you must be careful to do what you have promised, such as what you have vowed to the Lord your God as a free will offering. I do not know anyone that's innocent of this, even unbelievers. You want to hear some vows rising up before God? Get on a plane that hits nasty turbulence. Let the bargaining begin, right? No atheists in foxholes, right, with bombs going off all over the place. And don't think for a second that I'm innocent of this either. 
I can't believe I'm going to tell you this. I distinctly remember in college wanting to date this girl named Mary. Honey, I was lost. I was confused. In first service, when I said that, I realized that you were 11 years old when this happened. I love you very much. What is it? When you're in a hole and you want to get out, stop digging. (laughs) Moving on. Anyway, I remember praying to God that if he would somehow make it so Mary would date me, I would do anything he wanted. I know, I know, I know. You're having a hard time understanding. Nobody knows what I'm talking about here. (laughs) God, do this for me. And I'll do that for you. Or how about this one? God, if you really loved me, you would insert your desire here. Who do you think you are? Is what God should have said to me. Many of you know my story. You know I didn't give my life to Jesus until long after college, after two years of literally trying to disprove the existence of God. So here I am offering terms to a God that I didn't believe in about a young lady I didn't even know. And not only that, but what do you think the probability is or would have been that I would have held up my end of the bargain? Let me remind you what it was. God, I will do anything you want. Zero. Zero. Do you know what the first thing God wants from us? Faith. I didn't believe in him. I had struck, I struck out before the first pitch was thrown. But that's the law. It's not hard to understand. You make a vow and you keep it. Don't make a vow, it's not sinful. It's that easy. But let me change it up a little bit. Let's say you sell your house and you have a bunch of money left over and you vowed to God that you would give a chunk of that to your local church or a charity, whatever. You sell the house, you receive the proceeds, time to write the check and you do so with utter disdain that you have to do it. Do you think that pleases God, whose streets are paved with gold? If you do, then I guarantee you relate to God like you relate to a police officer. Not you, Louisa, who's literally married to a police officer. The rest of us. When you drive by a police officer going 20 miles an hour over the speed limit, Or when you drive by a speed trap and your inspection sticker is nine months expired, what is the first thing you do? If you said slow down, you've just given me the right answer, but not the real one. The first thing you do is look in your rearview mirror. Because you know that you are not in right standing with the law. So how does the gospel bring this to light? Why should we write that check with joy? Why should we keep our promises to God? Because God first kept his promise to us. God told Adam and Eve, eat of anything you want, but not that tree. If you eat of it, if you sin against me, you will surely die. 
Adam and Eve ate. Now, what did God's law say they deserved? Death. But the gospel says no. The gospel says mercy. So God made a promise to Eve, to Adam, to Satan, to you, to me, in all of eternity. That one day, he, God himself, would bring about the one who would crush the head of the snake. Who would set the captives free from the bondage of sin and death. Who would redeem and restore his people and his creation. That it would be God himself that would do this. And through Jesus Christ, that is exactly what God did. Jesus Christ is God's promise to us. And he did not fulfill his promise begrudgingly. He sent his only son into this world not to judge us, not to write us one traffic ticket after another, not to condemn us, but to keep the law for us and die the death that we deserved. And Jesus did not go to the cross because he had to. He went to the cross because he wanted to. His sacrifice is the ultimate act of worship. And his gospel, his good news, it changes every single I have to of the law into I want to of relationship with our Father. Have to is the drumbeat of the law. Want to is the heartbeat of true spirit-led worship. Now let me close with this. We talked about the temple and how worship was localized there because that is where God's spirit dwelled. But now God's spirit dwells within each Christian so that we worship with all of our lives, everything we do, surrendering our hearts to him and living in obedience, not out of religious obligation, but the fullness of his love. So let's call it 25 years after Jesus died on the cross. Paul, a Jewish convert to Christianity, wrote this in his letter to the Christians in Rome. This is Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, I hope what stands out to you is Paul saying that given God's mercy, which is Jesus' death for you, we surrender ourselves to God as a sacrifice to God. That is our true and proper worship. Christ gave everything for us, and so we give, give everything to him. But hidden in that exhortation is something amazing about you. Remember, Paul was first Jewish before he was ever Christian. And by Jewish law, the only sacrifice holy and pleasing to God was a sacrifice that was spotless and without blemish. In other words, perfect. If you are in Christ, and Paul is now encouraging you to offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God, what does that mean you are in Christ before God? Holy and pleasing and perfect. Therefore, I urge you, 
brothers and sisters, in light of what Jesus has done for you, present yourself to him as a sacrifice, your entire life, holy and pleasing before God. That is our true and proper worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this book of Ecclesiastes that continues at every twist and turn to challenge us not with superficial questions, but with major life questions. And this one today deals so richly and speaks straight into not just what we do, but who we are. It speaks straight to every single identity that we have. Father, I pray that our lives are marked by your worship. That everything we do, there's no corner of our life that is off limits. That we're, that, that we're not playing the game, the religious game of going through motions. You don't need any of that. You, we don't need any of that. And you don't want any of that. That is exhausting is probably why you say you're weary of bearing them. Father, you want our hearts because you know that when we dedicate our lives to you, when we consecrate our hearts to you, when we sacrifice our hearts to you, we live in that light. We live from who you've made us to be. That governs then what we do. So, Father, I, I pray that this word is carried by your Holy Spirit into our minds, into our hearts, not so that we walk out of here with a trite saying or some cliche, but so that our lives are changed from one degree of glory to the next. Father, would our, would our lives be marked individually and collectively as a people who hear your voice, listen and obey. And Father, you are a God that deserves that. Your very nature demands it. And you know that we will find rest when our hearts find rest in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.